You're listening to Season 3 of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a podcast covering the entirety of sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam. For new fans, old fans, and not yet fans, where we watch, analyze, and review all 41 years of the iconic anime in the order it was made. We research its influences, examine its themes, and discuss how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today. Welcome back to Mobile Suit Breakdown. This is episode 2.53, and yes, you heard that right. We are going back to season two for a special addendum episode as we revisit Zeta Gundam to talk about Camille Bidon with Doctor of Educational Psychology, Bailey Garbutt. Besides studying real minds and chatting with us about fictional ones, Dr. Bailey is also a longtime Gundam fan from the Wing on Toonami generation. He is a Gunpla builder and leader of Gunpla workshops, and one of the hosts of Gunpla, Gundam, and Gunpla lifestyle podcast, The Cutting Mat. Be sure to check the show notes for links. Dr. Bailey reached out to us when we started covering Zeta Gundam, his favorite Gundam series. But we weren't able to schedule a time for an interview until our Between Seasons hiatus back in July. We chatted about Camille, how his relationships with his parents affected all his other relationships throughout the show, and we even had time for a brief detour to discuss some other characters, too. So without further ado, Dr. Bailey. I am Bailey Garbutz. I am... Uh, I suppose I'll talk about training. I'm an educational psychologist by trade. I just got my uh, PhD in educational psychology. I have a master's in psychology as well. Congratulations on the PhD, by the way. The last time we talked to you, you did not have that. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And I was uh, in another headspace at that time. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I did my research on uh, language variation um, and language attitudes, uh, particularly pre-service teachers. Uh, attitudes towards uh, language variations amongst uh, students speaking a dialect other than quote-unquote standard English. And uh, right now, I'm uh, working as an educational consultant at Duke University. But my interest in Gundam is, I, you know, there's a cohort, and I think you're in it as well, <laughs> of individuals that got exposed to it, uh, it from Toonami, you know, way back in the day. <laughs> I'm one of those, you know, mm. what is that, 20 years ago? <laughs> <laughs> Let's not talk about that. Let's not remind ourselves how old we are. <laughs> indeed, indeed. It, 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 it boggles the mind, especially uh, meeting new fans of the other uh, series and sequels that you haven't touched yet and that I shall not talk about. <laughs> <laughs> we appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah, so I started way back then, um, and I, I started... Probably Robotech really got me into stuff, but Gundam Wings was really what got me in. And I dug pretty deep in both the anime and the uh, the Gunpla to this point. I mean, doing it right now, doing a, a podcast kind of on that. Mm-hmm. But I also I also really really was a fan of the uh, the kind of narrative that was displayed in the show and the kind of portrayal of heroes and and what it means to be you know an antagonist a protagonist and it really turns it on its head and in particular you know our our topic today talking about zeta mm-hmm. gundam they they really like from the second series they throw that on its head like immediately and, and force you to reconsider you know your idea of it but uh, what i did appreciate you guys did in the first season is that first Gundam did that as well. You know, it wasn't, it was definitely not black and white in, in terms of who was good and bad. So mm-hmm. I kind of chuckled to myself, you know, when people are, are so gung ho for, for earth Federation and so <laughs> against <laughs> Zeon as like, you know, space Nazis. Like, are, are you sure about that? <laughs> the secret of Gundam is you shouldn't be for anybody. <laughs> yeah. They'll only break your heart. <laughs> Yes, yes, indeed. So, yeah, I, I remained a fan uh, for, you know, just a general anime fan 
going through grad school and whatnot. But I, I picked it up again recently. We have a, a local um, a Gumpla building community uh, here in, in Cary, North Carolina. And uh, back up about, say, about three or three, four years ago now and got pretty serious into enjoying the series again, but also building the Gunpla to an extent that I did before, which is, you know, airbrush setup and painting and customizing all that kind of stuff. The real deal. Yeah, <laughs> the the real deal, so to speak. Met some some great friends that, like I said, we started a podcast together. So um, do you want to take a moment to shout out that podcast? Yeah, let me plug it. <laughs> So I'm on the Cutting Map podcast uh, with uh, some good friends of mine. Joel True Gumpla is what he goes by. Uh, Brandon Mechagenre, uh and Tino uh, Big V Roman. So shout out to my podmates. And so we talk about Gumpla, but we also expand to talk about the scale modeling as a hobby in general. And then we also talk kind of generally about uh, life affiliated to to being in in this hobby mm-hmm. and also let me note that there's a e <laughs> on our uh when you look at it on itunes we've got that e next to it because yeah we we are it's kind of no holes barred <laughs> conversation uh that we have but it's it's good fun and uh and i really enjoy it so you would say it's unlike mobile suit breakdown it is not appropriate for children <laughs> Yes, yes. And I, I, you guys have done a great job at that. Um, you know, I could I could listen to it potentially with my son around, but I can't do that for my own. <laughs> and I also can't have my uh, my coworkers per se, you know, <laughs> dig into you know the things we talk about. But aside from that, um, we find that the community and, and and like I like I thought, you know, we have listeners in common uh, between the two podcasts and. Uh, I, I, the community really is flourishing, not just in anime, but in the scale modeling community in particular. Mm-hmm. And I think we're really benefiting from the breadth of discussion and the breadth of media that just fans like you and me uh, have put out uh, out there about this amazing anime, amazing genre, etc. Oh, I agree completely. Yeah. So where will people find the Cutting Mat podcast? Everywhere you find podcasts. <laughs> yeah, oh, we're on iTunes, Spotify. Um, we have websites. So the cuttingmatpodcast.com is, is where you can, you know, find those central links. You know, we have uh, Patreon subscribers, et cetera, uh, and a Discord for those that are interested. Uh, so, yeah, definitely check us out. If you are you're into building Gunpla, it's not even about being an advanced builder or anything like that. If you're just, you know, it's something you do as a pastime and you want something to listen to aside from the mobile suit break breakdown <laughs> podcast, <laughs> check us out. It's, it's good fun. So at what point did you first connect your love of Gundam with your studies? It's, it's through and through. Um, when I really dug into looking at the human psyche and looking at personality and in particular in, in my area of educational psychology, the development of children as they progress from you know early childhood to adolescence to adulthood, and I think that uh, again Gundam really lends itself to that well because you know we're looking at you know child soldiers <laughs> we can look at that um, you know from first Gundam Zeta and and we'll, we'll see that continue as we uh, expose to the other uh, seasons and series as well. Uh, we have these protagonists, uh, you know, some cases antagonists or people have been placed in that position where their experience of childhood and their experience of learning and development is, is arrested by these uh, these experiences uh, of war and wartime crisis. And so it always fascinated me, you know, how we can put a, a kind of research lens on analyzing the experiences of, of these uh, characters as we watch the show. So I've really, really enjoyed the level of, of detail and, and how far you guys are uh, when when going through the character. Uh, even I, I know you're, you're coming at it from, you know, kind of a, um, a liberal arts perspective, per se, and, and looking at it as a, a piece of, of art or a work of art so to speak. But I, I even appreciate when you, you dig into 
kind of like a psychoanalysis of the characters as you go. It's not something that I've dug into for my own work, but I always enjoy considering the characters from a, a psychological perspective, but it's taken into consideration, as you guys have, when the show was made, what was going on, and how abreast the show creators and, and producers might have been of how characters would interact and how how characters would react to circumstances around them. And the sort of historical understanding of the psyche as well. Exactly, exactly. In, in particular, um, we could talk about Camille because he came across, and let me, let me preface this by saying that I, I'm probably... I don't know if I'm the chief apologist for him, but I'm, I'm gonna. I'm pretty. I'll probably get pretty close to to you, Tom. About, you know, I was going to say uh, that th that throne is occupied. <laughs> yes, yes. So you know, we'll we'll evaluate how close I get to that. Well, I'm I'm glad we are on the same page with with regard to Camille. Even I came around. Yeah, yeah. I, I noticed. That. <laughs> It's fortuitous that we're doing this now. When we had originally talked to you, Bailey, it was uh -huh. pretty much near the beginning of Zeta, and we had talked about doing a conversation like this that would have coincided with the Hong Kong arc when uh, Camille was <laughs> not quite so fully developed a character, and I think Nina found uh -huh. him much more insufferable at that <laughs> point. This would have been a, perhaps a more confrontational discussion. <laughs> indeed, indeed. So Zeta Gundam... You know, like we talked about, I, I started with Wing, or, you know, rather, all of us were forced to start with Wing, <laughs> I suppose. But um, fortunately, not you, Nina. No, somehow missed that one. <laughs> but when it piqued my interest and I sought out more of Gundam and, and other aspects of it, I don't remember how it exactly happened, but it wasn't first Gundam, for example, that I came across first. It was Zeta Gundam. And that I share with, with some friends of mine that somehow Zeta Gundam came out first. And so my understanding of a lead character in Gundam outside of Gundam Wing and Ultra Universe, whatever, is, uh, is Camille. And at, at this point in my research and in my career, I felt that I can apply kind of a critical lens and, you know, apply some developmental theories, some educational theories towards Camille and really kind of flesh out hopefully what Tamino, hopefully what the, the showrunners uh, intended to present with him. Let's talk about the parameters of that lens for a moment. Mm -hmm. During Zeta, Camille is, I think, 17 years old. Yeah. Where does that put him within the range of your studies? He's a you know developed quite a bit at this point, but he's not yet a fully developed adult. You're quite right. So, um, one of the first theories that we can use uh, is uh, Erickson's psychosocial uh, development theory. And it's, it's, uh, it's stage theory that extends throughout the lifespan of an individual. Mm -hmm. um, it has eight stages. There are, of course, criticisms of Erickson's uh, formulation of, of such a theory, you know, and, and recognizing that he's looking at it from, let's say, Western European mm -hmm. view. So it, it does have limits to how generalizable and, and certainly how thorough it might be across across cultures etc and then another critique of course of stage theories in general is the idea that you don't necessarily move through all of them in the same order as other people or get stuck in a phase mm -hmm. or are incapable of moving back and forth between stages uh, more modern theories that follow a sequence usually allow the ability to extend uh, multiple uh, characteristics of a stage in other stages or not progress in a, a, a standard way. But that being said, where Camille would tend to fall is around the fifth stage, which is uh, an identity versus role confusion conflict. So let me say that Erickson presents each of these stages, each of the eight stages in terms of a conflict that is going on within the person as they develop, as they interact with the world. Mm -hmm. So there, there is a component of 
kind of making it a little bit ecologically valid. So recognizing that this isn't a person within a bubble. This is a person that is going to interact with other individuals around them, their family, their friends, et cetera, and kind of form a sense of themselves in relation to that. So with identity versus role confusion, it's around 12 to 18 years. So we have Camille falling right at the kind of the tail end of that being 17. And you can see at least up to the first 20 episodes, mm-hmm. <laughs> but certainly the first 10 episodes, really trying to seek out kind of uh, a role for himself or seek out a kind of sort of identity, whether in, according to Erickson's theory, in terms of occupation, in terms of a gender role, in, in terms of politics, when we think about the larger kind of political climate of Zeta Gundam, um, and in terms of ideals. Um, what I like about Camille, though, uh, in terms of ideals that, that we can say more or less right off the bat, uh, applying another theory, so Kohlberg's uh, theory of moral development, he seems to early on in the show and then throughout, uh, even to the end, is that he has a questioning about fighting. He has a questioning about the loss of life and things like that, you know, mm-hmm. which, according to Kohlberg's theory, would fall into a post-conventional view, which is you have a recognition of laws. And I guess in this case, you have a recognition of the kind of suspension of laws of death and murder in a wartime scenario Uh, but you have a valuing for life that is let's say outside of that or maybe above that above all else you know there should be a preservation of life no matter what the circumstances Mm -hmm. so we see that at least in various points expressed by camille yeah definitely so early on in the show camille's sort of clear conflict with himself and people around him about how he sees himself and his life versus this role that he's found himself in. Is that the kind of conflict that we're talking about when we talk about identity versus role confusion? Quite right. Exactly. What really comes through and when you guys talk about it is where Ayug is imposing on him a role that they have, Mm -hmm. you know, and let's say we, we don't get enough time with the parents to see much of that. But they're certainly in school as he's running away in the very first episode. There is a place that he's supposed to be that he's not, mm-hmm. you know, so he's stepping outside of these expectations. But at the same time, we also see instances where he is unsure about what he should be doing and where he should be. You know, which is that conflict, but it's also that defiance of any kind of external suggestion of what he should be doing, at least initially. So early on, um, there is a lot of focus on Camille and the expected activities that he's rejecting. Like, I I think specifically about his interview with the military police officer after he's been detained, when the guy is like, you used to be in all these clubs that you did really well at, but you're not doing them anymore. Why you're so well qualified, you could go into the army. And Camille's reaction to that is just like, ugh, just like total disgust. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But then I notice in like episode two or something, he says, I hate the Titans. I want to run away and fight the Titans. He, he expresses this desire to join a But as soon as he actually does join a then he also starts resisting the role that they're trying to put him in. Mm-hmm. Is that the same sort of thing? This rejection of the role that is being put on you kind of regardless of what the role is. And even if it's something that you thought you wanted. Quite right. Um, it's interesting in it. We're asking, and I think uh, Nina touches on this in the last episode, is that we're asking a lot of uh, resolve from a 17-year-old. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we're asking for a lot of well-contemplated decisions, and basically we're asking adult <laughs> behavior from uh, Camille at, at this 17 years of age. So he makes a decision to join Ayuk and... It'd be curious to know more about what is driving that. It, it might be a political you know, view that he has, or it might just be a rebellion against his parents associated with, with the Titans, you know. Mm-hmm. And so he moves into Ayug, but I think what we get presented is 
Ayug being a kind of rebellious group still has a structure and still has an order that they need to follow in order to be a you know to be a cohesive oppositional force to titans and he seems to recoil from that still Mm -hmm. uh in that circumstance or he seems to be surprised by it initially and unwilling to commit to that at that point well he does seem to have a instinctive resistance to authority and to hierarchy Mm -hmm. and while the titans are authoritarian and very hierarchical Ayug is no less hierarchical and at times also seems very authoritarian. So I'll add uh, what he is, is. He's in this state of moratorium about his identity and the circumstance of being in the family with Franklin and, and Hilda's parents. So essentially being within the Titans and then breaking out from that. And it seems his only other choice is Ayug. Um, that's not allowing him the space to kind of come to a decision of his own. Mm. And so when he gets into that situation with, with Ayug and they're like, are, are you a new type? You you fight really well. You, you pilot the Mark II really well. You know, come fight for us. Is like, well, he's not ready for that. He's not mm. ready for somebody to impose that on him uh, because he's still coming to decision on his own about what's going on. They get to the moon and Camille is saying, well, I haven't made up my mind yet. And they say, no, this is actually not a choice you get to make. We have made the decision for you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, let's stack the moral uh, stage that he might be in uh, at this point, too, which is that he has a valuing of life. And so the only circumstance of war is that lives will be lost in, in the process. Mm. He's put into this position of having to fight and we see instances so we see multiple occasions where he rushes the mark two he goes out and fights you know um i suppose there is a transition i guess by the time he does get the zeta gundam where it's kind of automatic but his reasons for fighting tend to stem around uh protecting the people around him or or doing things to you know defend the immediate relationships that he's that he's formed as opposed to fighting the much larger issue at hand it, it is combined of course with he hates the titans <laughs> you know so he's gonna he's gonna fight the titans but in terms of the motivation on a micro level it's to maintain or at least allow keep people alive so he can develop relationships with them <laughs> you know and at this point we have also seen cats enter the picture who in his development, seems to resemble Camille in a lot of ways. Yes. But there are also a lot of characters around their age who don't turn out the way they did. So do you have a theory for why Camille and Katz ended up the way they did? It stems from their experiences. And I think I'll I'll touch on an area that we may or may not agree on, <laughs> <laughs> which is the kind of the ideology of Camille's emotional state and uh, <laughs> his uh, ability to regulate his emotions. And with that, I'll posit a theory that, that you can tell me if it makes sense to you. And with cats, it's similar because we know, we know him being, you know, one of the three orphans from the previous uh, series and going through those traumatic experiences at that time. But with Camille, let's start with him. Uh, he does demonstrate, and it seems to be an inability to control his emotions under cer- certain circumstances. He's impulsive, and we can probably attribute this inability as more or more extensive than your typical 17-year-old boy should be. We're, we're both nodding over here, <laughs> just to confirm. <laughs> yeah, so right off the bat, first episode, he... Uh, goes off on um, Jared, you know, in in the instance with, oh, Camille's a girl's name, (laughs) you know? Mm -hmm. So we get this instance of a wild outburst, and we get it again, let's say, uh, as well with the MP and seeking revenge. And we we see other instances of it throughout the series as well. I I think we see a bit less as we go on. So there's certainly some development that's occurring. But this initial kind of encounter with him and um, his emotional state 
might suggest that there is something behind it in terms of traumatic events that happen to lead to that. So I think when you talked about it, you compared it with Amuro, for example, and the the kind of experience that he went through uh, during the one-year war and the reaction that he had, which um, when you talked about it at, uh, in, in the first series and, and again in relation to Camille, that, that really rang true. Uh, and also the demonstration of the symptoms that we saw with Amaro rang true. But I think you discussed it as it might be more indicative of uh, complex PTSD, so complex post-traumatic stress disorder, mm-hmm. with Camille in relation to his uh, likely childhood experiences uh, with an abusive father, maybe a, a, an inattentive mother or whatnot. And there are aspects of that that might be the case, but I'm not entirely sure if it rises to the level of complex PTSD. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, the instances that we do see with uh, Franklin and Hilda, it definitely suggests, as you say, he hits him, I think it was after Hilda died, they came back uh, to the Titan's ship, Franklin's there, Camille says something about Franklin's um, lover, and he hits him, he slaps him, punches him, right? Yeah, he punches him in the face. And it was apparent that Camille is not unfamiliar with that experience. So there might be something there that indicates, you know, uh, certainly physical abuse, but with complex PTSD and then PTSD proper, we would see quite a, a range of demonstrated symptoms across the board. You know, things like having like a reaction, uh, an extreme reaction to heightened things that are are extremely violent or extremely um disastrous like you know natural disasters war fighting things like that and we see that camille is able to kind of maintain himself throughout those situations for the most part indeed he's out there you know fighting in a mobile suit um the one in particular that come to mind is when wong lee hits him yeah, episode nine, he just mm-hmm. he beats him unconscious, right? So that is an extremely alarming event to see in the show. But when you take a good look at Camille's reaction, it, it would seem to me that it's not so alarming to him in a sense that it triggers. Uh, and we can ask how much are they really able to depict in an anime from the 1980s, but still... He does have a reaction, and that reaction, to me, if you ask me, it seems more level, and it seems more uh, lucid than someone that is suffering from the effects of uh, CPTSD or, or PTSD. It's it's a questioning of why, you know, why did you hit me? Why are you doing that? I didn't do anything to you, whatever. Fairly proportional to what happened and not as extreme mm-hmm. as we might expect to see in somebody who's experiencing PTSD or CPTSD. Here's one aspect within uh, PTSD and CPTSD that he might uh, that that might be a little bit more <clears throat> applicable in his case. He does demonstrate emotional dysregulation, and this still uh, stems from experiences in childhood that would disrupt the normal development of emotional regulation the kind of ability to be aware of your emotions and more or less control them, uh, you know, in situations where you're in a state of heightened arousal. Mm -hmm. So it falls within the symptoms and the, uh, the kind of diagnostic criteria see PTSD, but it can come from a number of other areas. It can come from, you know, anxiety disorders, depressive or mood disorders, for example, and it could get to the point of personality disorders, so borderline, bipolar, all of these, including um, PTSD, have within them this kind of problem of emotional dysregulation Mm -hmm. that can be as a kind of result of uh, childhood trauma or things like physical abuse, emotional abuse in early childhood. For example, one aspect of that is in that very first episode again his reaction to jared saying that camille is a girl's name etc is this outburst of you know of physicality it's it's this extreme anger and then the kind of characterization that we have of camille from you know 
anybody that watches Gundam is he's an angry boy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, to have across the board see PTSD as a result of experiences in early childhood, we don't have enough material there to mm-hmm. to really indicate that conclusively. There would also be kind of visual cues that they could use to evoke that that we saw with Amaro mm-hmm. during battle, like having these kind of hallucinations about it, having the after effects kind of having him be riddled by that, even out of the Gundam, things like that. There are ways that they could demonstrate that to us that we just didn't see with Camille. Whereas we do see these observable behaviors of these outbursts or these strained. Another example is of emotional dysregulation, the strained relationships that he that he has uh, with people throughout the series. Mm-hmm. So there's one behavior that I want to focus in on uh-huh. um, later on in the series, post Wong Lee beating. Camille has this tendency, especially maybe exclusively with uh female enemy pilots Mm -hmm. where he essentially refuses to fight them and he just sort of lets himself be like smacked around and beaten by these uh in some cases by the pilots and in other cases uh he lets the zeta be beaten up by the psycho gundam or the psycho gundam mark ii or or the the bound Bound dock Dock. Mm -hmm. yeah where do you think that willingness to just let himself be abused comes from and how does it fit into this there's a few things that happen there and you guys uh kind of touch on it as well in terms of the uh the male and female roles and and how those are are uh, presented uh in this series in relation to how uh, japan views traditional male and female roles and we see instances of that not just in gundam and zeta gundam but other series where we, we we have what seems to be you know very progressive ideas about it on one hand, and we have these these instances of a male character demonstrating kind of kind of a chauvinist view of male female roles. That's one aspect. Another aspect uh, does relate back to his relationship with his mother again, and what we can glean from where that goes. And and as you guys discuss. Uh, what he does with Emma and Rekua and, you know, uh, any number of the characters, maybe not Beltoshka, but uh, throughout the series as kind of being a sort of surrogate mother. So that probably experience with uh, his mother, which we can maybe say was neglectful or having an insecure attachment uh, to his mother really uh, affects every other relationship he has with uh, women throughout the series. And in the instance of fighting for initially, but then fighting Rosamia and female characters uh, throughout, once he knows it's them, mm-hmm. we can see where there's he gets that shift. And I think we see it most specifically with Rosamia when she initially shows up with the, um, with the plant. He's fighting, but then he finds out that it's a female pilot, and then he changes his kind of, and as you say, he he goes through these waves of, oh, he's going to defend who he needs to defend. I think it was uh, cats that you know they have to rescue at that point, uh, but then he's ambivalent about how he's going to uh, interact with them. So it's really curious, but I would say it does connect back to. Uh, the relationship that he had with his mother, whether, like I said, it's it might have been neglectful, it might have been an insecure attachment in early mm-hmm. childhood if she was um, preoccupied with her work. Uh, but that really carries forward uh, as what we see. Again, the thing that I, I uh, kind of couch this in is how much do the uh, the creators, how much does Tamino and creators of the show really inject into it uh, into the show for us to notice mm-hmm. uh, and, and pick up things like that. But certainly, you know, there there are things there that they're trying to tell us about uh, Camille and Camille in relation to uh, the female characters in the show. I want to go back to your comment about strained relationships, because one of the things that struck me mm-hmm. as probably the one of the biggest differences between First Gundam and Zeta um, 
first Gundam is all about this found family and the relationships and responsibilities between these characters, Camille has so few close relationships of any kind with anyone. Mm -hmm. How much of that is just circumstances? Fewer of the people around him are peers, are his own age and his own mm -hmm. rank. And so like ability to be friends rather than to be, you know, a mentor as he tries to be to cats or uh, someone's junior as he is to most of the rest of the crew. Mm -hmm. How much of it is Camille's sort of inability to form and maintain relationships yeah when looking at these things it's not really one or the other and as it stands with like conducting an analysis of or, or ev evaluating the circumstances it tends to be a, a both and <laughs> so that was always very intriguing how zeta gundam it's the second series to come out you know and yet they give us this character two years older than Amuro was when, when he first went into the Gundam. But uh, whereas Amuro had, uh, you know, he had Fra, he had uh, Kai, he had Hayato, he had all the people within his age range or cohort to interact with. And then they showed us the dynamic of how close he was with them, or maybe even not so close, even though they're could have been in were in his same class or whatever we get camille and as as i talked about before he demonstrates where he at times doesn't want to interact with people at other times he reaches out and wants to make connections almost desperately so exactly and yet they put him in this in the ship with mostly adults <laughs> it's like it, it's intriguing so in that instance we have that chasm that he needs to traverse if he's going to have a relationship with anybody it's like maturity and you know just life experience that uh whether it's quattro or uh Rekua initially uh, any of the crew of the agama which are all you know mostly adults mostly uh one-year war veterans and the closest one as you guys discussed is is emma who's still you know an adult in relation to him and has a more kind of older sister relationship at most with mm -hmm. him, you know, even, even if he wanted to try to have it as a different way initially. So he gets placed into that situation in contrast with Amaro. And then, as I said, if we can take uh, emotional dysregulation as a, as a possible diagnosis for Camille, then we can observe that he is going to have difficulty forming and, and, and maintaining relationships with individuals. So it's really these two things combining to really put him in that, in that spot. And it, it's interesting that they, uh, that's what they give to us right off the bat. You talked about Camille's relationships with women on the crew being a reflection of his relationship with his mother. Do you think the same applies for his relationship with the other men like Quattro and Amaro versus his relationship with his father? It seems that way. And he says it quite explicitly at various points with his parents and the way adults are supposed to be or that they you know, made the choices that they made. We get it again when Amaro... Uh, when Emro is kind of reintroduced uh, as a character in the way that he initially, he idolized Amaro for a bit and then people started comparing him to Amaro and then he didn't like that. Then he meets Amaro and his view, I guess, don't meet your heroes, <laughs> but the view is he goes into kind of a critique of Amaro and the, uh, the way Amuro is in relation to what he's doing. So Amuro, as we see, is kind of struggling with his own sense of identity or his, his own sense of... Uh, we, could, we could even probably put him right on, on Erickson's uh, psychosocial uh, stages theory, is that he's struggling with uh, generativity, struggling with being useful, uh, identifying with how useful he was during the one-year war. And yet Camille he doesn't allow him that <laughs> that space he immediately is critical of him as he has been with Crotro and continues to be uh throughout the show about what he does and and the way i see it is he wants to be able to look up to them and see them as the way it means to be a man i guess or to be an adult uh 
because he wasn't able to observe that with his own father. And yet they seem to not really hold up to his ideal view of what it means, um, you know, for the most part. I think at a certain point, he just resolves to kind of make his own decisions about what he thinks is right and what he feels he should do. And it, it's irrespective of his perceptions of Amuro or Quattro or any of the other adult males that, that he's encountered mm. throughout his experience in Aug. With Camille, we have, like I said, I don't think he's had that much arresting of his development uh, through some, you know, like I said, through childhood experiences because he he's strong-headed and he demonstrates his uh his opinion and his resolve quite often through the show he does have conflicts within him but he's not a blank slate for somebody like quattro to impress upon or amro he has a kind of perspective that he then uh challenges uh them with and this really distinguishes him from the other mentee type characters in the show especially toward the end there we see uh haman has minova Sirocco has Sarah, mm -hmm. and then Quattro kind of has Camille, but Camille is really the only one who is a person unto himself and is able to assert his personhood even against these parent-like ideals. Yeah, and so when you bring those up, so we have Mineva, which she's eight, right? I don't remember, but she's a young girl. Mm -hmm. And we have Sarah as well, you know, an adolescent girl. And then we have Camille. So can we can we again uh observe that are they making any statements on male female uh roles or, or kind of male female um personalities mm. uh in these circumstances because again it, it's there where we have those those uh those dyads if we say uh of the mentor mentee and yet camille being the one male under those circumstances i mean we have cats as well sort of mm -hmm. but even when we add cats into the situation, he has a view of what is right and what is wrong. And that stands in opposition to uh, the adults around him often, more often than not. Even if Amuro is the one person that he wanted to look up to, and he does defend him on occasions, but he also challenges him, at least in the very initial kind of um, when Fra and, and, and Katz and Let's, and uh, they visit him, He's like, why aren't you the one to be doing the stuff uh, to be the hero under this circumstance? You know, mm -hmm. it's curious. I think the show is is definitely commenting on gender. Uh, they do in a lot of ways, sort of explicit and more subtle, mm -hmm. probably in terms of the ways in which women are more likely to be defined by their relationships. Uh, mm. Sarah, in particular, places so much importance on her like trusted relationship with Sirocco and then feels very threatened when he develops a relationship with Rekoa. Mm -hmm. And also it's a general sense of a state of dependence <laughs> that Minova really depends on Haman. There, there's no way for Minova to be independent in that scenario. Yeah. And similar for Sarah, both because of perhaps an institutional upbringing, because she's a cyber new type, because mm -hmm. she maybe doesn't have a family or anywhere to go a sense that she's entirely dependent on this relationship for her survival <laughs> and her like mental and physical well-being. In that same situation with Sirocco, I, the one that stands out to me, that it boggles the mind. I, I haven't gotten to the episodes you guys have talked about yet, so, but in any case, Rekua, can you... Can, <laughs> <laughs> that, that one really, it confuses me to this day. Um, I, I know the show sets up this kind of reversal of roles. So Emma moves over to Ayug from Titans, and then we have Rekoa doing the opposite. But what what's going on there? <laughs> yeah, we do talk about it at length. <laughs> we basically sum it up as Rekoa being someone who has sort of let life experience push her into certain situations she does she's not very self-directed yes. um yes i could see that and is sort of unwilling to make an ideological stand in any way mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. 
she feels like a relationship will fix her life. Like she expresses, I think, to Quattro that uh, she feels very emotionally numb and disconnected. Mm. She thinks a romantic relationship will fix that. And nobody in Ayug pursues a romantic relationship with her who is an acceptable partner. Interesting. Huh. Whereas Sirocco... As a charismatic leader. <laughs> right, who's willing to exert that charisma on her in a way that nobody has done before. Mm. And that allows her to be again in a position of not having to make her own decisions. And not having to take responsibility right. for her own decisions. She very much puts responsibility for her choice to leave on, oh, well, the men of Ayug. <laughs> Nobody in Ayug valued me, and so I left. Yeah, that is, okay. I can see that. She also, at one point, describes her experiences during the one-year war. Uh, she has a little flashback, um, and I think it might actually literally be a flashback. I think Rekwa probably has some PTSD as well. She was a gorilla fighting on the moon, uh, and everyone in her unit was killed. She was the sole survivor from that, which may have left her not really feeling any particular attachments to whatever group she's in. Mm -hmm. So she doesn't have strong loyalty to Ayug. They were just the group that she happened to fall into. And then when Sirocco comes by and gives her a better offer, why not? Mm -hmm. I could see that. It, as you say, it's it's not so much that she was driven by the Ayug cause, mm -hmm. but rather it, it's almost like she got swept up in it and then likewise got swept up in the, the kind of the aura that Sirocco uh, had and just going with that. In those episodes, immediately before she is captured by Yazan and then defects to the Titans, she's clearly not well. She's clearly like going through some kind of break. That's right. Um, she keeps like her mind wanders and she just sort of lets herself drift off into space. A couple of times it, it looks like she's trying to go and get herself killed in battle. Like mm -hmm. something is seriously wrong with her and Sirocco took advantage of that. That is an instance where they are depicting, you know, instances of mental health being challenged and how that drives the narrative forward with, with a character like Sirocco. That's, yeah, yeah, that's good. She also... Um, as sort of like a final point and coming back to the gender roles aspect, uh, seems to find some comfort in the idea of like a very traditional submissive woman's role mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. that she finds a lot of satisfaction in that f for herself. And it's not something that we see m much of within Ayug. We have women pilots. We have one woman engineer <laughs> who we see around. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And she even, towards the very end of Zeta, you can tell she feels betrayed when Sirocco mentions to her that he wants to prop her up as the leader for their new movement. Mm -hmm. um, her response when he tells her this is, she's like, I gave up everything for you. <laughs> <laughs> that's awkward that's yeah. <laughs> that's awkward it's not what she wants i mean he's not going to attend to that anyway yeah but, sirocco has never cared what anybody wanted but it indicates uh where her mind is as far as as what she should be doing right yeah it makes sense like i said zeta is awesome <laughs> <laughs> well, i think that's a great way to end it yeah thank you so much for coming on Mostly breakdown. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, I confess, now at some point in the future, I want to talk to you about Char. <laughs> oh yes, <laughs> that's a whole. Yeah. Oh man. That was the first thing I thought of when you mentioned Erickson's theories and that people can get like stuck in a stage. I was like, oh, like Char. <laughs> There's a lot to him. Sometime, <laughs> sometime in the future. <laughs> yeah, I'd be delighted. Next time on episode 3.9, Putting the Pieces Together, we cover Mobile Suit Gundam Double Zeta, episode 11, and what a boob. Women are complicated. No, you're complicated. A hopeless, awful man. The odd couple. A parody of a cyber new type. Transformation sequence! Breaking the fourth wall. Together now. Together now. Together now.
and hey, that's the name of the show. You will see the battlefield of new types. Mobile Suit Breakdown is written, recorded, and produced by us, Tom and Nina, in scenic New York City, within the ancestral and unceded land of the Lenape people, and made possible by listeners like you. The opening track is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. The recap music this season is New York City, instrumental, by Spinning Merkaba. You can find links to the sources for our research, the music used in the episode, additional information about the Lenape people, and more in the show notes and on our website, GundamPodcast.com. You can also get in touch with us on Twitter or Instagram at GundamPodcast, on Facebook.com slash GundamPodcast, or by email at GundamPodcast at gmail.com. Or share your wrong Gundam opinion with the world by shouting... Hey, isn't it weird that mobile suits are hard and crunchy on the outside with a soft, chewy center out your window at passersby? We might not hear you, but the world needs to know. This week's wrong Gundam opinion comes from Jace347 in the MSB Discord. Thank you, Jace347. And thank you for listening. Oh, we lost the call again. <laughs> okay. I'm going to call him back, though. Yeah. Hi again. Okay. Yeah. I swear we didn't <laughs> hang up on you as soon as the interview was over. <laughs> <laughs>wanted to touch on that we haven't brought up yet um no and then wave rider crash (laughs) pierce the heavens (laughs) oh it's good login sorry (laughs) (laughs) also great Um, Sirocco would refer to himself as the heavens he would do that